Hey, I know you're here for the podcast, but give me 30 seconds to talk about a new service we just released for anyone working in a CPG brand. Finding the perfect co-packer or supplier can be a real pain. You spend hours Googling options, texting your colleagues, asking around different Slack groups, and still you get nothing. That's why we created Fiddle Connect Consulting, a done-for-you service that does all of the hard work of finding your dream co-packer or supplier. Best of all, it's 100% guaranteed and you get three free months of Fiddle Inventory Operations software included. Interested? Just go to lp.fiddle.io forward slash FCC. That's lp.fiddle.io forward slash FCC. Now, on with the episode. Welcome to the Physical Product Movement, a podcast by Fiddle. We share stories of the world's most ambitious and exciting physical product brands to help you capitalize on the monumental change in how, why, and where consumers buy. I'm your host, Ken Ojuka. In this episode of the Physical Product Movement Podcast, I speak with Dr. Glenn Matheson, founder and CEO of Alberts. Alberts is a company that makes smoothie and soup vending machines. These machines can be placed in offices and schools and hospitals and gyms for a convenient and healthy alternative to a packaged product. Glenn tells us about his journey from university project to seeking and getting his first investment and launching and scaling his company. Glenn is a wonderful European entrepreneur who is very driven, definitely knows his stuff, and he's a wide open book. He shares some lessons on the similarities and differences between producing a physical machine and producing a packaged product. He is a great guest with tons to share. We hope you enjoy. All right. Hey, Glenn, uh, thanks for joining me. How are you doing? Hey, Ken. Yes, I'm doing fine. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. It's the last mission of the day here today. <laughs> it's late over here in Europe. That's right. You're in Brussels. Is that correct? Yes, correct. Correct. Uh, uh, Brussels, Belgium. I come from the north of the country. And in the last 13, 14 years, I'm living in Brussels. Yeah. Well, hey, thanks for, for, for jumping on. I know it's, it's, it's just a little after 10 o'clock uh, p.m. there. And so thanks for uh, making time. No problem, man. We'd like to kick this off uh, by just going over a quote that, that's impactful to you and you know, maybe something that, that you like to live by. Um, do, you, do you have one in mind? Yes. Um, so I thought about it last week. And actually, the quote that, um, that it's not really a quote, but it's um, my dad used to whistle every time when he came home. So I remember as a kid, I was in the sofa or I don't know what playing around in the house. And when my dad opened the door of the car after work, and he was just whistling while walking through the door. And that impacted me big time. I guess genetics also play a role. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but, uh, but I do have to admit that the serotonin levels in my head are in a general day on the high, <laughs> on the high side, nice. uh, resulting in a kind of positive mindset. And I think it comes from that attitude. Yeah, so that has always stuck with me uh, and still today. Yeah, so, so the whistling, I mean, what, what did that mean to you? I mean, uh, just, you know, that he's in a, in a good mood. Is, it, is, it, is that what you mean? So, yeah, what it, I, th I guess what it meant for me or what I, what I took away from it um, is that with a positive attitude, uh, life is uh, it's really on the brighter side itself already. 
And of course, that's not always easy. And some people are in a very painful position, most definitely. But I think in general, trying to look positive on every side of life is something I took from, from my dad. And that whistling somehow for me was like the symbol of, you know, coming home probably also had a lot of shitty days. And probably was also not always feeling great, but just that attitude of saying, hey, I'm here, I'm home. How is it all going? That always stuck with me. That's great. That's great. So for, for those who, who don't know you and haven't heard of, of you, do you mind uh, explaining a little bit about your background and then, and then, you know, just tell us a little bit about what your company does? Yeah, sure. No problem. So my background, I, I come from a small village. A village is called Essen, a small village in the north of Belgium. And I grew up really with a, let's say, youth or years, which were kind of without any worries or you know, anything on that side. I grew up in a nice atmosphere, playing soccer a lot, um, going to a, a Latin school at that time. I was pretty strong in mathematics and learning for me was pretty natural or like it was kind of, uh, yeah, kind of always um, relatively smooth. So in town, in the little village, they said smart kids, they go to the Latin school. <laughs> so I ended up in Latin school doing the maximum hours of mathematics I could take within that Latin environment. I very quickly knew the whole Latin wasn't anything for me, uh, really, but, but it learned me how to study, let's say. And then I quickly after was really sure that I wanted to do science, mathematics, and everything around that. So then I ended up in uh, studying engineering, electromechanical engineering. I headed off to Brussels, which is not the typical choice, uh, although it is the capital of the country. Uh, mm-hmm. It's not the typical coast choice to go study. There are other study cities like Leuven, Ghent. But somehow, uh, I also discovered now after um, uh, 32 years <laughs> that um, I always tend to do things a little different. Uh, or my tendency or preference goes in that direction. So I really wanted to go to the capital. I had two days introduction here at university and I went the first day. Then I had a big party with the only person I know in whole Brussels. And then I said, yeah, this is a great city. I want to be here. So I started <laughs> studying here. Um, and then I thought after university, I thought I have to go out here as soon as possible and go work work in the real life. Uh, but I actually ended up staying. <laughs> of course, uh, I, did a, uh, I did a PhD there. Um, pursued a PhD in robotics. And then that became a double PhD also at the University of Pisa and the research center at Genova, which are both in Italy. So that was super interesting, really amazing researchers I've met. Um, and uh, my tendency always goes towards new things and new challenges, let's say. Um, and that was the same in the PhD. A relatively young professor at the time, today still, but he came to me and he said, okay, Glenn, uh, I have this master thesis in mind. Don't you want to do this? It's a total new topic. And yeah, I said, okay, let's give it a go. And that worked out. That became then a topic for, for the um, PhD. And then he got a really big grant on that topic, uh, which allowed us to have a lot of resources, more researchers. I got a personal grant then. And kind of everything kicked off from there. And then, yeah, so then the entrepreneurial path came rather soon. I called it always the night job. Uh, together with Hans, we got a first startup. Uh, that was in, uh, back at the time it was new, but now not anymore. It was photo booths connected to the web, pictures on Facebook, Instagram for like uh, corporate purposes. In the beginning, weddings for friends and then corporate purposes like marketing. That evolved from day job to night job to day job. Like it was kind of fuzzy at a certain point. Um, 
Then we started today, what is today now, Albert, uh, maybe some more about that later. Uh, but that startup really took a lot of time, a lot of energy already at the beginning because it was kind of a big mission. And at a certain point, I decided, okay, you know, I need to uh, stop doing everything at the same time because that is my uh, biggest uh, strength maybe, but also my biggest weakness that I try to do a lot of things at the same time. So then I uh, finalized PhD. I also started a master in business in parallel, so also finalized that. Then the first startup was sold, and then uh, all focus got to Albert, although I still hold a 10% small position as a postdoc uh, at the University of Brussels. So that's kind of the journey, let's say, until Albert. <laughs> Yeah, or, yeah, or got it. So, so Alberts, you know, I, I know it's their smoothie machines. You also are releasing a, a soup machine. Do you mind explaining a little bit about how how they work and and what what they actually are? Yeah, no problem. So, um, I think most people are familiar with vending machines. You know, the vending machines they distribute a Coca Cola or they distribute a Mars bar or something like a snack. You know? And uh, the last five to six years, it kind of kicked off in 2015, um, just at the same time that we were kicking off with Alberts, uh, a new kit was on the block, let's say, and it was a space tech space called Food Robotics. Now, what's in a word, what's in a name? Basically, comes down to that these vending machines that are rather rudimental uh, at the start, uh, they kind of start advancing. They start preparing fresh meals. They start preparing fresh snacks, starting from fresh ingredients, frozen ingredients, and a whole variety of concepts actually came out of there. And so we, at the time, we had no idea that this was becoming a tech space or whatever. We didn't know anything about it. We just had the idea: can we? produce a fresh and healthy snack from a kind of vending machine and can we apply the robotics technology that we have learned and the principles that we have gathered over the years can we apply it to this field which is then food and so what we do is we our mission is to make a healthy life the easiest option and so we do that by having a machine uh, it looks like a vending machine a bit wider and in the vending machine you see pure fruit and pure vegetables so you see blueberries strawberries you see chunks of uh, pineapple chunks of mango and we turn within two minutes we turn these raw ingredients we turn them into a personalized smoothie and, or soup and personalized it means that we start uh, from your choice in the app you can even up to the gram decide what you want in your cup um, so let's say that is the, the the rough framework you know you, you see your foods being gathered you see them blended in your cup and it gets out same for the soups uh, there of course we eat them as well um, so we try to make fruit and vegetables easy and sexy <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Yeah, I was really excited to talk to you actually because, you know, first of all, I I, you know, I'm I'm into manufacturing and I like the space a lot and the question I'm always asking is, you know, who is it that's actually making these machines? that then makes all the products, right? And so for me, I've always had a long, long um, running interest um, in, in these machines. I think your business is, is interesting because it's almost like you're taking some of those machines, you know, from the manufacturing floor uh, or facility mm -hmm. and uh, you're shrinking it and then you're taking it directly to the consumer uh, in the space where they are. Yeah, exactly. And so I guess if, if we were to think about it that way, um, a lot of the guests that have been on this podcast are CPG uh, brands or manufacturers. Um, you know, what, what do you think are some of the differences of, of um, distributing your product in, in the way that you do it, right? Like through a vending machine versus, uh, you know, one of the options I'm sure that was on the table is you can make all this, these fruit and 
you know, the, these fruit smoothies or these soups, you can make them in a factory setting and then distribute them, you know, through retail. Awesome. But you guys kind of took a different route. You know, what do you, what do you think uh, are some of the advantages? What were you trying to accomplish, you know, when you, when you chose this route? Yeah. Now that that's a great question because it gets actually to the core of like, why did we do it? Why did we do all this effort all these years to, to make basically these machines? So mm-hmm. for me, it starts from the very fundamentals. Uh, at the start, when we, when we started Alberts, uh, we said, okay, what do we really want this machine to do? You know, not, not think engineering, but like, what do we want from values out of it? And the first thing was that whatever needs to come out needs to be really healthy. And the second thing was that whatever needs to come out needs to be transparent so that people can really trust the product. Uh, and that both touches the core. So I, I believe that a lot of the food we eat uh, is actually not so nutritious. And that doesn't only mean that it can be full of sugar, fat, or salt, which are kind of like the three devils uh, to fight in the food world. Uh, but that can also mean that uh, you lose a lot of your minerals and your vitamins in all the manufacturing steps in these factories. It's not really normal that your fruit in your smoothie is good for like two years. You know, that you lose a lot of nutritional value there. So I think where we are different uh, is that we try to take the raw ingredients and that we basically try to have zero food waste and we try to have uh, as minimum of nutrients lost. Zero food waste, we reach by having frozen products. So the full strawberries are frozen when they're visible, the, f- the full berries as well. So we don't need to throw anything away. It's non-perishable. And then secondly, uh, in a frozen state, these um, uh, ingredients, they tend to keep their nutrient levels up and running. So that is very favorable to serve uh, a drink in two minutes that has all the nutrients inside. Um, I think the last commercial side and more, so this is more like on the health side and what is inside, but then on the commercial side, if you still need to make your product, you have the opportunity to personalize it. If you personalize it, you trigger a, what I've been referring to as sexy, or you trigger an interesting point with the consumer, and that opens the relationship, a direct-to-consumer relationship. I always say it a little bit challenging, like who has a Coca-Cola app? Not that many people, because like uh, uh, if I just order a Coca, I buy it. But at Alberts, uh, we see at certain locations over half of the people going through the app to order. Why? Because they make their own recipes and they like it and they save these recipes. And that opens a D2C, direct-to-consumer communication channel, which is pretty hard to get if you're just, or not just, but if you're a CPG product, it's pretty hard to get that relationship um, starting. So I think these are like the core elements why I think we're different. And luckily, it touches a little bit on the value side, but also on the commercial um, aspect. There. Right. Yeah, it, it does touch on the unique value that you guys bring. Yeah. So so I'm interested in, in these recipes, right? So could you give us an example of a recipe somebody might sit, might save on their phone and then, you know, reuse later? Yeah. So. I'll give you, like, in the beginning, we were testing at a big retailer here over here in Belgium. And so we were literally testing, like, everything possible because we had no experience with the machines, no experience in the field. Like, we didn't know anything. It was a really rough time because we were basically repairing machines twice a day in the morning. <laughs> and so it was, like, a harsh time. I always had a T-shirt full of blueberries in the car and a shirt, uh, which was uh, supposed to stay white for the meetings during the day. You know? But anyways... <laughs> 
during these tests, we really got like crazy feedback. So for example, uh, imagine a, uh, it was somebody who was working, I think it was called Jason, um, uh, who was working in the supermarket. And it's, um, it was, let's say, uh, kind of a masculine um, a person. He had tattoos all over his body, all over his face. He was like a, you know, a rough guy, uh, or at least in my perception. Um, and uh, he came to me and he said, you know what, dude? I made this amazing recipe today. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Okay. I, I didn't know you would be so enthusiastic about this. And then he added, and I showed the recipe to like four of the girls that came into the store and they really fucking loved it. Sorry for the effort. And they really loved it. And now I saved it. And now I'm always making it when they come. So what I mean is that people tend to, to love things that, that they create themselves where they can put a little bit of their passion inside in whatever way it is. And then of course, taste-wise, you can go for what you like. So for example, if you like more sour stuff, you can go for more passion fruit, more uh, uh, more pineapple. But you have people who like a lot of berries, so they stuff it full for all berries. You have other people who really like spinach or celery, you know, more the, the, the veggie side. So uh, people make that, save that, and then we can we can communicate back to you like we can say hey we know you like uh, yellow fruits why don't you try this new yellow fruit um we know you like uh, really sweet smoothies why don't you try this new uh, flavor this week so um yeah i think that opens a lot of possibilities marketing wise um uh, where you can get that relationship growing with the consumer but also offer value back you know like not just uh bluntly say hey <laughs> also try this in the store uh, uh or something like that yeah. So how many different um, raw ingredients do you have in the, in the smoothie machine? And then how many in the, in the soup machine? So uh, both of the machines have uh, 10 ingredients uh, as their uh, base ingredients. So these ingredients uh, are in cartridges. So you see them like right in front of you. Uh, and each cartridge is approximately like five kilograms. So you got 50 mm. kilograms of fruits and veggies in there. And then um, people can make the recipes based on those. Um, in the soup, we also have a uh, stock in there. So one of the ingredients is the stock that we have. Yeah, and we've talked a lot about the the smoothie machine. Um, you know, what what's the difference um, with the with the soup machine? What did you have to change yeah. in, in the machines in order to make that work? Good question. In the beginning, it was a mystery. Um, so <laughs> during our journey, uh, we really started off as the smoothie boys. So uh, totally in the beginning, uh, with co-founder Philip and Stefan also, you know, we were the smoothie boys. You know, we had this manual bar that we've made and then we were just making, we were the robots, you know, <laughs> like the machine wasn't automated yet. And then, of course, it took a long time to get the, the technology layer ready. But we then gathered a lot of investors like Peter, Sophie, and many of the business angels here in Belgium who said, we believe in the story of this working ship. Uh, at a certain day, we meet a new potential investor, Christian de Wolf is his name. And he said, okay, dude, I have this other vision. I want to go towards soups. And we said, you know, we've been thinking about soups a lot. But the problem is that how to make a soup in two minutes, we all know if you cook soup at home, it's not done in two minutes. It takes time to cook your soup. And he said, look, I'm a food technologist. He's a very experienced entrepreneur in food uh, industry as well. Like he has, he had so many ventures, uh, difficult to count. And he said, let me solve that together with you. And so what happened is that we basically, like I would even say literally discovered, at least from my side, that uh, the reason to cook a soup 
uh, is different than I thought. So I thought it was necessary to make soup, but it's actually not true. Uh, it used to become a habit to cook our soup, sometimes even a very long time, because of two reasons. Firstly, old ingredients back in the days, you know, when they were at the farm, they tend to be not that perfect as we buy them now. You know, they tended to be like huge carrots, very fibery and, and older. Or and, and so you needed to cook it to get the fiber a little bit, a little bit cooked through so you could digest it. And the second reason is that they were cooking the soup back in the days because then they could last it for a day uh, because all bacteria were killed. Right. Now, if you, look, if you then look at our concept today, all the veggies that come directly from the fields and are being frozen within four hours, you know, they're so fine. They're so perfect. Like all the technology in the agriculture got so developed that these ingredients are really like beautiful, spotless. And then secondly, since the machine makes it direct to consume and actually keeps it frozen all the way, these bacteria are not um, that big of an issue, you know, of keeping it at room temperature for a night. So basically now we don't cook our soup. So oh. that for me was like, it's not possible, you know, <laughs> uh, but it is possible. Um, you actually get a way richer flavor. The feedback we got from consumers was, oh, your pea soup actually really tastes like peas. And we were like, yeah, it's like, shouldn't that be logic? And, and then the, the gentleman said, I think he was like 50 years old. He said, you know, I'm drinking soup here at work every day, but honestly, it tastes more like pepper and salt than anything else. Um, and that's true because we kind of cook it through a lot. So the, the taste flattens and then we spice it up. Uh, but uh, the nice thing now is that with the technology, you can actually, we do steam technology to heat the soup while blending. So at the same time, we have four bars of steam and then 10,000 RPM blending. So the cups um, uh, are, are being treated a little roughly. But uh, within two minutes, you have that heated soup, blended soup, and the taste is in your face, real, fresh. And I think that is in the end what, what you want. You don't want to, you want to eat carrot soup because it's carrots, <laughs> right? Right. Not because it's soup. And not because it's just salt and pepper, right? Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So super pleased with that. With that, I was going was very unexpected for myself. So uh, I'm curious about the name, right? So Alberts, what's what's the yeah. story behind the name? So yeah, the story goes that we're sure we're not Einsteins, uh, but we do believe we we can be Alberts. It kind of relates to, of course, Albert Einstein. Then. Um, let's say one of the most intelligent persons that ever lived, uh, at least if you dive into the imagination, the guy must have had to think about uh, everything he came up with. And then the mathematical intelligence to translate it. Uh, how, we how we look at ourselves is no Einstein, but what we try to look at ourselves is this picture of Einstein where he sticks his tongue out. You know? Yes, it is that person who has a certain capacity to, to make things move, but he's also the guy who sticks his tongue out at the picture, which he then became famous with it. We felt, at the time, we really felt relating to that. Uh, yes, we work very hard and we try to do smart things and different combining different technologies, but at the same time, it's still us, you know? We, we, we want to make fun of we, we're, we're still, yeah, uh, maybe a little bit smoothie guys <laughs> from the beginning. Um, so that, we, we related to it. Uh, also, we like it that the machine has a name. It is already very personal to, to get to a machine, so like you can relate more. Um, yeah, that's that's a bit how it how it came there and um, kind of stuck with us. Yeah, yeah, I like it. I like it. So you mentioned you mentioned investors. So just switching gears a little bit, you mentioned investors when you first approached them. You know, with with this idea, what do you think it, it was that that got them excited about investing in your business? That's a very good question. I have no idea. <laughs> uh, <laughs> 
No, uh, the first investors was uh, business angels. Um, they were um, known in the industry of food. Okay, so they, they did have experience in food, um, and and one also had some experience in vending. So it was not out of the blue. But I think what got them excited is that we were like. Uh, at the time, but now still like very, we were very fresh uh, on the block. We, we dare to, to, to dream big, but at the same time, um, we, we were hitting the right nails at the time, you know, healthy, fresh, personalized, you know, like uh, it's all buzzwords actually, but it's all literally inside the concept, almost literally translated into the concept. So I think that is what, what touched with them. But it's funny you ask actually today, because I was today still with an investor uh, who came with us in the third round. And he today, and that's that's even the third round, you know, that's not the first one. And he told me today, you know what, actually, when I invested, it was only about the people. You know, it was only because I believe that you guys could make something happen that, that makes sense. But but it, it's always, he said, in the beginning, what is there? There's the ID and there's the people. So it's people. So I think they, they choose based on energy. Uh, they choose based on uh, determination. And uh, I think that is in the end what, what makes a choice uh, yeah, what well, makes a choice? A gut feeling, I, I, I would say. I would need to ask them, but I'm pretty convinced they would they would point in that direction. Yeah, yeah, makes sense. Well, I mean, definitely with you with your background, with double PhDs and and all your experience, um, even in the um, I'm sure the the experience um, building machines for uh, photographs. You know, I'm sure yeah, yeah. that 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 was a factor as well. You know, you knew what you were doing. Yeah, definitely. But yeah. And this was also in the time when I was still doing everything in parallels. So. <laughs> <laughs> but no, definitely, definitely. So there were definitely some things uh, on our side. And uh, we were very lucky to meet these people. You know, it's sometimes uh, I was looking back last time, like I think six months ago, we were looking back on the trajectory at a certain point. And, and we really discovered that every super important encounter we went through almost all started based on a small piece of luck, you know? So you need a lot of luck to meet these super friendly people in the end who say, I believe in you, you know, you can make it, like, do it. And and often it's a little luck on an event, you meet somebody and, and actually you didn't even want to go to the event, you know? But you then still went and then somehow one year later, it's an investor in your company. So yeah, sometimes they call me the preacher man because I'm always just preaching the, the, the vision or the ideas I have. But yeah, after a while, it sticks with the right people. And then when you're lucky uh, enough, they, it, it hits the right persons and, 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 and things start moving. So that's my takeaway. Yeah, a couple more, more business questions. Um, let's talk a little bit about your sales uh, process and, and who you actually sell this machine to. You know, so, you know, who's your typical customer and, and how do you find them? Yeah, that's, a, that's also a very good question. So in this food robotics world, there are, you see everybody trying to, you know, there are solutions with pizza, with coffee and all, uh, all, all kind of products. You see everybody kind of searching their way. So we have been revising this like a zillion times, um, but the typical, let's start with the typical location. So the typical location we aim for is a location where our device uh, from its value that it brings has an added value. So that results in companies that really want to show, you know, we're, we're innovative even. We want to um, uh, invest in the health of our employees. In gyms, uh, where a gym wants to stand out and compare to others and say, hey, here you can get your fresh ingredients uh, in order to do your sports. Uh, schools, higher education, uh, universities. And then on the other side, yeah, so that's more the food service spectrum. On the other side, uh, you have the retailers. 
there is a big added value for our devices for retailers because they all want things freshly made on the location mm -hmm. while not spending an FTE on it all day. Uh, because then quickly it becomes impossible for them to have somebody there all day for that job. Uh, they want somebody that can work flexible on all the different things. And in our machine, you can refill whenever you want. So people take care of it and then it runs through the day. So these are the two locations. But the actual clients we then go for, so where we try to sell the machine to, we have opted for a model where we want to scale through master franchises. Uh, so that basically means that uh, you cannot ring me up and say, hey, I want one machine because I have this bar where I want to put it. Uh, we would try um, to get in your city or in your country one partner that has access to market. That is the first criteria that already has 2,000 customers, for example, and can say, look, I ring my top 50 customers and I sell 40 out of 50 because I'm sure this will work. You know, that kind of attitude. Mm -hmm. And then secondly, that has the operations on site as well because it remains offending. Uh, yes, it works automated, but not <laughs> for five years. Like you, you need the operations to take care of it. So th that's the kind of partner we're looking at. And it's a little scoopy, actually, but we are now launching in two weeks with a first partner in the UK. So that is uh, super exciting for us. Yeah, congratulations. Yeah, it's the first time that what we're actually... So, so far, I always say we have been... So far, we have been our own master franchisee, you know, and mm -hmm. we've just been learning how to do it. So we started contracting directly with hospitals. Oh, yeah, I forgot hospitals, by the way. So we started contracting directly with hospitals, gyms, etc. you know, just to put machines out there, do the operations ourselves with the team and learn everything how it needs to be done. And then now we will lean on the experience of that local partner to get his operations efficient and to get his go-to-market uh, efficient as well. Um, we will then sell off the devices to the partners and take uh, recurring on their sales of the machine. That's, that's basically how it will work. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Are you guys in the U.S. at all? No. So for uh, not, uh, we've opted to focus on the continent, uh, Europe here, uh, but definitely plans. I guess we will start preparing 2022 and then see, uh, see when we can really put the first events. Okay, great. Well, you know, we, we could probably talk forever about this. You know, I've got a bunch of uh, questions about, you know, how the, the, the actual machine works. But I, I know we're running up uh, against time here. And so I want to be respectful uh, of your time. And especially since you're, you're doing this for us late at night over there. Just, just kind of a, a final question about manufacturing. You know, how do you guys actually produce the machines right now? Let's say that you you get a big order, you know, this this order that's in the UK and you've got to ship some machines. I, I assume you, you have to manufacture those machines to get them before you get them over there. What, what does that process look like for you guys? Yeah. So, you know, it's a little bit like the friend on the US side, Elon Musk, you know, it's a uh, production hell. <laughs> so um, that's exactly where we're running at now. So we're now, we did batch productions. Now we're going to a series production, which involves everything from revising your bill of materials to finding, uh, trying to uh, bundle uh, suppliers into single suppliers. It is, we have partnered. It's a bit, again, the same approach. Um, I think this is our spirit. You know, we always try to partner with experienced parties while still staying in control um, um, mm -hmm. on, 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 a, on the essence. So what we did is we've, we've partnered with two uh, production partners here locally. 
uh, a new one came in actually. The second one is new since a couple of months. Um, and so both of them are very close to each other. Uh, we actually produce in Belgium. Uh, so uh, we produce local for local. And what we do is uh, we try to go for a system where the raw materials uh, literally are ordered uh, upon demand. Uh, this is the basic working. That's what I mean with the experience. This is the basic working of the factory that makes all the framework and the casing. So they have a uh, system where they only, everything goes right through the factory. So they only order metal once it flows through the factory directly to the finished product. So it's really um, a factory of the future, as they call it. Uh, so everything's digital, everything's uh, optimized. So that means that we have no stock on the side of frames or, or anything. It gets through the factory if we need it. Then, of course, on the uh, more fine mechanics side, uh, the robotic side, let's say, we do have some sub-modules that we prepare up front. And then once that raw framework, uh, that's 30 kilometers to the second factory, once it arrives there, we install all the fine mechanics, all the hydraulics, the freezer, and then that gets uh, all connected, tested out, uh, and then basically ready, you know, then ready to go. And so. Sounds easy. <laughs> it's a hell of a lot of work. We try to yeah, digitize. It doesn't actually sound so easy to me. So um, <laughs> that's pretty yeah. impressive. The the beauty is that you know now yeah technology is advancing at rapid pace. So uh, we now have a company here in Belgium as well, uh, also a local partner that has a digital work instruction platform. So the beauty is that both both factories and us. So it's a you know, three-party collaboration. We all will be in this live in the same work instruction. So if something changes on some side, it will be directly uploaded and, and, and ready for all partners. So that's our trick, let's say, to try to scale very lean and try to start producing lean. Of course, if this goes bigger, we will at a certain point need to move to a central location where, where we do the stuff ourselves. Uh, but rather than building a Giga factory, we try to work with uh, partners that already have their business, and we call it the micro factory. <laughs> like, uh, it's, it's, it's our little, uh, little system to, to get to that. But there's still a lot of work on that front as well, so it's far from done. Um, it's far from done. Yeah, there's a lot of optimization still to be done. And, uh, a lot of a lot of testing frankly to to start that first series production so i mean we're far from there really but um we got a lot of support also from these partners like one of the two is with us already for two and a half years uh, i still remember i arrived with them and i said okay look uh, we will be working here like a lot okay and he said like what do you mean that's okay i was like no but i mean we will be here until two o'clock like probably for the next three months <laughs> <laughs> and he's like he's like oh uh, oh, okay. Yeah, we can make that work. He said, <laughs> and then literally, now it was always till two o'clock. But we, literally, when we ran against deadlines, their team came back to close the factory and put the alarm on. So we owe them X more. They're called. We owe them like big time. Uh, just as our uh, technology uh, supporter, uh, Foxdale, same there, man. We have been using their. I said the first meeting. Is it okay if we have an office here? And uh, frankly, we never had another office. <laughs> you know, we just stayed there, and we just camped there for four years uh, saving costs uh, by sharing the office etc so was we, we owe them big time on their commitment to say yeah sure you're welcome you know join us um uh, without that we it would have been very hard for us to to move step by step because that's really what we did we we the team grew step by step we had so many people that 
that puts so much energy already into this project from, from our team side. And then we have these partners, so from technology provider towards the manufacturer, but also on the ingredient side, people that have been helping us long time on the supplier side. I still remember one supplier who was there with the first prototype when we were still the robot, you know, and then he's, I believe in this, <laughs> uh, but that's a really long time ago. You know, it takes a lot of time to mature these uh, hardware products. So there were so many people that kept on believing in this, uh, in the concept, in the project, in the team. So we owe them big, big, big time for always staying there with us. Definitely. Yeah, yeah. And I think you're touching on a point that, that you know, we see often in, in our business is, you know, this isn't just your your manufacturer, you know, this is a partner, you know, and, exactly. and your success is really, really, you know, dependent on, on them doing what they say that they're going to do for exactly. them, being flexible with you as your product changes, as your process change, changes. So uh, just, just a quick question, maybe you could give us some tips on, you know, what what you look for in a manufacturer, right? You know, this is often a very hard part of producing a physical product for people. You know, what what are some of the things that you know you'd look for, or maybe what are some of the red flags that you know would cause you to to not go with with a certain manufacturer? That is a beautiful beautiful question, really, uh, because um, it is firstly not easy, and secondly, it usually is quite an important choice where you cannot run away from that easily. You know, it's not like, oh, I'll just buy it somewhere else. <laughs> uh, it, it usually involves big changes. I had, of course, when you start doing these hardware projects, you meet a lot of startups that then are doing similar projects in different fields or, or same field as food, doesn't matter. And I have heard all the stories. So ranging from, you know what, I just went for the best in class worldwide that makes machines which are for consumer based. This was then, so for in your kitchen, the best of the best started working with them. They are like the leaders. And then it went horribly wrong up until fights about patents, up until bills of 3 million that all of a sudden are received in the email box, you know, where they start breaking up. So all to lawyers, court cases, like you cannot imagine. But then at the same side, for example, we, we went a bit the inverse way. We said, you know what, we need a flexible partner that is near to us, that has high expertise into the general technology field we are in, which is more the fine mechanics, you know. But at the same time, it also needs to be still important for them. You know, we, we shouldn't just be a small number, small, small part in the corner. So what I've learned from my side, but I find it I find it dangerous to give tips there because um, my main learning is that if you find a partner where you clearly see that person or the owner is so the real decision maker, you know, the guy at the end or the lady at the end who really makes the choices, if he or she is really believing in what you do and has somehow a connection, I think that is already a massive plus because it will get shitty and they will pull you through. But if there's no connection whatsoever with the higher level, then it's very hard to make things move. And, and you don't have the money usually as a startup to say, okay, I'll just write a check and I want everybody to move in my direction. Or, you know, this is usually not possible. And so that is one thing I think. You need that passion. And then secondly, uh, you need to make sure that it is for them also in their line of business, you know, that they can keep on defending it. If it's too far away from what they actually are doing, at a certain point, they will say, oh, you know what, we're done with this now. You know, we want it out. Um, 
last part, maybe, I think it's still an advantage if the production partner themselves has still a lot of different skills under one roof. So what I mean is that if their standard business, for example, is actually 90% producing one type of machine with one type of technology, which they actually only screw together because most of the parts come from a supplier, they will probably lack a lot of knowledge that is required to fill your gaps with their flexibility. So they can have the the, the mood or the, let's say, the, the, the passion to be flexible for you. But if under that roof of your manufacturer, there are different skills missing, they will very quickly have to insource that. And that will just cost hard cash. While if they can do it with their team, they can say, okay, let's cover this up a bit. You know, this will take us a month, but okay, it's okay. We'll take care of it. Let's meet each other in two weeks and we can advance again. But if they need to hire in-source engineers or I don't know what processes, it will cost them hard cash and you will quickly run up in, in trouble. So all in all, I think these three things were for me the deciding factor. But maybe this circles the meeting or the, the, the podcast. Then I think, like I said in the beginning, just like that investor in the end also has partly a gut feeling to say, okay, let's just do it. I think with the first manufacturer you go with, it's a little bit simple. I think it's a little bit the same. I just believed in the, I believe the word of the owner of the company who has told me, I'll take care of you and I'll try to really do my best in every way to, uh, to be a good, good supplier for you. And um, I know your weak points, you were honest to me and I'll always be trying to get honest to you and we'll try to get through this together. Now, if you can start like that, that's really important. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. again, Every startup is different, you know. If your startup raises 25 million to build the next uh, consumer at home device, you maybe still end up better with that best in class worldwide. You know, you see, so it's, it's, I think it's very diverse. And maybe a last point, sorry for talking long about this, but no, you're all, fine. The, all the memories come back. I've also heard horror stories of going far from home. So uh, I'm definitely not against far from home. I've met my girlfriend in China, so it's okay. But um, <laughs> but, but what I mean is that um, like, if you're still in the uncertainty zone where really your product is super uncertain, everything's changing almost like every day, it really helps if it's close to your home, you know, like or close to where your team is. I don't mean your home, but close to where you're operating. It really helps because you can be fast. You can drive there. You can solve problems on the spot. If you then have everything over internet or everything over long boat trips, or if you have to fly it inexpensively, it's just very hard, you know, to to move fast forward. But again, there, if your product is mature, if your product is maybe not super complex, and you find a producer somewhere else, then that's certainly fine. But my experience was we had a pretty bulky machine. I mean, we're not a smartphone or not a, you know, we're, we're kind of a machine. Um, it weighs a lot. It, it has a volume. Uh, there is a level of complexity. Do it at home. You know, do it at home. The first volumes will be relatively small. We're not making 10 million iPhones. So, it, it, like, you know, do it close. Um, and I'm super happy that we did that. Uh, and we had an advisor back in the time. And he also told me, look, he said, I swamped 25 million into a project with a big, one of the big food companies. It was also a vending project. And totally at the end, he said, after like five years of work, when the uh, production lines with the best manufacturer of Europe uh, was ready to do 10,000 machines a year, totally at the end, we somehow discovered, oh, you know what? Actually, the concept is not really working so well. Consumers (laughs) don't really like it. You know, let's, let's just stop the project. 
And I had this advice, exact same advice with the exact same number, uh, only the ones at 25 million, the others at 28 million, of another really big brand that everybody knows at home, also with a family project, which had the exact same experience, but just with another manufacturer probably, but I mean, it's the same mindset. So that guy told me, you know what? Whatever you're going to do, you're going to do it step by step. And if somebody tells you you're slow, it doesn't matter. You're going to go step by step and you're going to try to always make the next level up and always change again what you need to change. And uh, I'm not saying we couldn't have done it faster because definitely we would do it faster now. But I think that step-by-step approach and not thinking we need the best manufacturer or we need this or that, I think that was still a very good choice. Um, but again, I find it dangerous to really give hard hard advice, like always do like that. But I hope the, the finer insights can help maybe make the choice. Yeah. No, no, I think that those are really good, good tips. And not only in the, in the, you know, vending machine or electronic space, I think that uh, those, those principles also apply, you know, for the, the average, you know, CPG brand that, that's out there <laughs> just looking for, for a manufacturer. You that's hear a lot of the same horror stories. You hear a lot of the same challenges with, with working with somebody. And so I think those tips make sense. Yeah, yeah. No, okay. It's a special world, you know, once things have to be made, it's, um, it's you know, it involves so many people, different technologies, um, timelines, uh, pricing, it, it kind of encompasses, uh, like, it's like a baby, you know, <laughs> although a baby's <laughs> quicker made than, than raised, but yeah, it, it, it involves a lot of aspects. And um, I think passion in the end, it sounds so cheesy, but I think really depends on, do you find people that are passionate to do that with you? And that will respect your situation. And do you have a clear view on their interests? Then that is already like so much. That's already like, because it's not so easy to get the real interest of a company. Because of course they will say, hey, we will do this job for you. Right. <laughs> of course, uh, let's do business. We're open. Of course, they all want to do business. But um, yeah, getting to the core. And I think there it does help being a startup because you can ask in your naiveness, let's say, or in your sugar-coated naiveness or in your sweetness even or your cuteness, you can ask any blunt question you want, you know, which is which is maybe a bit harsher if you're in a professional, uh, big company style of thing and you're there with six colleagues. And, um, as a startup, you can pretty much just say, dude, I want to know this and that. And I want to like... Will you be there for me at night? And you can you can just go. Uh, so do that, I think, uh, because they will appreciate it. They will appreciate. It. Well, let's uh, let's let's wrap this up. We have a quick fire round. I've got four questions for you, and just just okay. tell me the first thing that comes to mind. What what's one tool or resource that you feel like that's been very valuable to you that you couldn't live without? First thing to my mind is the team. It's not a tool, a resource, but it's like the essence of it all. If, 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 if the team is not moving, then it's super hard to do, to, to get anything done. You're, you're more, I'm guessing you're hinting more towards the material products. But you the know, only thing it's, I, it's all good. I, I think team's a great answer, but, but yeah, okay. go ahead and finish your sentence. No, I just want to say I'm, I'm super uh, non-materialistic. Like I, my only position is uh, a bed. So I, uh, I, <laughs> nice. so I, I have, uh, yeah, um, I, I'm not, Really that kind of guy, but of course, yeah, the phone and the laptop. Uh, these days, if you don't have that, you're totally what is uh, one book that you you could recommend that's helped you a lot? 
That is also a very good question. Last uh, decade, I didn't went into reading a lot anymore. I went into sourcing a lot from the web, uh, like uh, a lot of articles. So no, I don't have any fresh book for you, man. What I would recommend is for people to dig on the web uh, a little bit deeper than the traditional uh, news source. You know, there are many, um, it's very dangerous to dig into the fake news website, as they call it these days. <laughs> But I really recommend like read a bit further than the, the normal news because it's not because then you discover the truth. <laughs> you know, I don't want to go all political here, but I just want to say that uh, it's super interesting. Uh, there are so many research uh, journalists out there, which is so rare to get in touch with these days, or it feels so rare, you know, because everything goes headlines, flashlines. But there are so many research um, uh, research journalists that write beautiful stories, almost literally like a story where they they were digging into something and they want to tell you all about what they discovered in XYZ. And I feel that almost got out of the general spectrum. Like it feels like it's not, not, not mentioned anymore. But these research journalists are so important because they are the ones with freedom to dig or at least enough freedom to start digging. So I think, um, yeah, that, that to me is a huge thing source of like information and uh, almost stories because i i feel like i read the story they went through you know to get to know that topic <laughs> sure. so i was really like so and what's uh one piece of advice that you'd give to your 21 year old self to my 20 year old self okay it is also cheesy but i'm going to say it. yeah I'm going to say it. So recently i got a baby and i always thought uh, i was always the one you know i'm always busy and Okay, I'm still, I still am today. But there was one person that gave me, uh, it's an entrepreneur actually that I know. And he, at a certain point, I knew uh, we were getting a baby. Uh, we were super happy with Vera. And uh, everybody gave me the reaction like, oh man, everything's going to change now. You know, you're always busy, right? This will be hard now. And I was like, oh shit, shit. I was actually happy, you know. <laughs> uh -huh. And then there was one guy and he told me, he said, ah, it was super hasty in the hallway. He told me, oh, Glenn, by the way, if everybody tells you that things will change and you cannot hunt your dreams anymore, fuck it, it's not true. They also told me and I discovered it's not true. And then he was just gone again. Uh, and you know what? That is so true. Like, um, of course, you need the... Uh, you need to have enough um, luck, let's say, to get along well with your partner as well, to do the job with two of you, because if you're solo, I think it's really um, a challenge. But but what I really want to say is that I always thought like, oh, no, I have to wait with that, because that will ruin everything. But it's inverse. You know? it, it inspires. It's super, uh, super natural, super uh, emotional. And also, it opens so many conversations with people in, in a spectrum which I was never in. So... Really, babies, they don't ruin the fun. <laughs> that's, what I, that's what I would say. So maybe I like 21 it. could be early, but at least at 21, I would say it to myself and then start considering it a bit later already. <laughs> <laughs> and then last question, who's one person in your field of work that you would love to take to lunch? In my field of work, well, I already mentioned his name. It's also cheesy and typical, but uh, I really like Elon Musk. Um, it's a guy to mention many things about, which are <laughs> on the negative or on the crazy side. But dude, I just like him. I think he's doing amazing stuff. I think it is um, the word that he always used is, is like, things need to be exciting and inspiring. And the story he always uses for SpaceX. But I think it's true. I think in many ways, he is very inspiring for somebody who is doing today hardware or anything that links from hardware to software. 
And dude, I just love him. I think he's doing cool stuff. I also have many doubts technology-wise and scientific-wise about some stuff. Is it all that good? As, but that that is another part. I think at the minimum is extremely inspiring. And I would like to share that, um, that meal in order to, yeah, see what's up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that would definitely be an interesting conversation, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, would be, yeah that would be really cool. Well, just wrapping up here, do you have any final pieces of advice that you'd give to those that are in the world of physical products, they're making something, you know, what would you say to, to somebody else that, that's out there doing that? So I would say do it. That is um, the Nike slogan, of course. But no, I think really my main message would be, yeah, just um, try to basically, sorry, I'm stumbling upon the words because I think, am I old enough to give that advice? But I guess <laughs> looking back for looking back for me right now, my, my main advice, and it reminds me of a, a class I gave uh, uh, a month ago, uh, was with students who were in their first bachelor. So I think at, my main advice would be, people tell you that focus is everything, and that is true. You know, and definitely in the hardware world, because everything takes time. So if you start doing 25 things, then you know, it takes a lot of time combined. But I think in the beginning, and certainly when you're, when, you know, when you're uh, younger, I think there is a lot of time to do a lot of stuff in parallel, to learn a lot of stuff, to experience a lot of stuff, because the hardware world today is never only hardware. It gets linked to software. So you need to know stuff about that. You know, you need to learn stuff about consumer. You need to learn stuff about business. So there's so much to learn. So doing a lot of parallel stuff at the same time, I think it's necessary to get that more holistic picture. Uh, but it is true that at a certain point, you really need to say, okay, now I'm almost totally messing up everything in parallel. Now I need to focus. And then you need to grab one thing and go for that. But but what I gave to the students uh, at that point, and I saw them smiling behind the Zoom, so I think they uh, they could appreciate it, is really that you can do for a long time a lot of stuff in parallel and experience and learn, and then at a certain point grab something by the balls and go for it. And that for me was then in the beginning so messy with the PhD and everything together. I was so lucky that my professor let me do because <laughs> if he wouldn't, then it would have been very difficult. So thank you, Bram. But yeah, so that would it be. You can do a lot of in parallel, and I even think it's necessary, but at a certain point, you need to grab something and then go for it. For me, that's today, Albert. Um, uh, so, yeah, that would be that. Well, Glenn, I, I appreciate it. That's a, that's a great note to end on. You've been an awesome guest, and, and I appreciate your advice and just sharing your journey with us. Thank you so much. Right. Thank you very much, and uh, good luck to everybody. And I hope to speak to you soon, Ken. Thank you. Okay, yeah, we'll see you. Bye. The Physical Product Movement Podcast is brought to you by Fiddle. To find out more about Fiddle and how our industry-leading inventory ops platform is giving modern brands and manufacturers full visibility into their inventory and operations, visit fiddle.io. And then make sure to search for Physical Product Movement in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else podcasts are found. Make sure to click subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at Fiddle, thanks for listening.